0: Just past 7 o'clock on a special Memorial Day Monday. It's time for Ira on Sports, 95.90 True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike
1: Balsamo. And Ira, like I said, happy Memorial Day. We're here live. We work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's uh, certainly Memorial Day. We think about all the soldiers that uh, fought to protect the country. I mean, over all the years, uh, it's just uh, tremendous. And our heartfelt thanks for, for all the service that they did to give us the country that we have right now. We uh, we have a
0: great show on tap for you tonight. We're going to be joined by John Pessa in just a little while, and you really, John Pessa, changed your mind completely on something, and that's not that easy to do, Ira.
1: Well, talk about Merle Day is that uh, Yogi Bear was on the uh, stormed Utah Beach. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was on the he was on the rocket boats in Normandy uh, that went on there. But yeah, he wrote about Yogi Bear, and I went into this saying, yeah, Yogi's, I don't know, top seven eight yankee player and i took way came away from it. I'm thinking about wow, ruth garrigan maybe bear because i yeah. says so to me he was the dominant player the uh, mvps three mvps uh but just the dominant player for a number for like 10 years and just had the longevity and also the world series championships and i just this book was tremendous it's great and i'm gonna love this interview we have with him
0: yeah he'll join us at just about 7 30 or so ira I, I keep wanting to talk about it next week we have an interview that is going to be one of the best interviews you've ever heard. It's with Brett Michaels. And I know you, what you're thinking. Oh, Brett Michaels, the rocker, the reality TV star. He's much more. He's much deeper than that.
1: <laughs> no, it's like one of those interviews where I work with publicists trying to get people, certainly talk to people coming on the station. I was trying to get somebody else actually. Honestly, it was Mike Tyson. there was a way that yeah. we were going to get, and uh, the same publicist worked with Brett and uh, and then suggested, well, Mike's going to be fighting Holyfield and this whole thing can't get on, but but you might get, would you like Brett Michaels? And I'm like, I don't know. And then I then it, would, it thought it would fit well with the surf because we're a rock station there. Mm-hmm. And also, I did not realize that Brett is as sports dominant as uh, through and through. I mean, he is the biggest Pittsburgh Steelers fan you could imagine. He's played national anthems everywhere. I mean, this guy lives and breathes the NFL, lives mm-hmm. and breathes. Baseball, listen, reads hockey. I mean, he is one of the best or biggest sports fans you could imagine. And we had this you know, interview, and he has a new book coming out, which is interesting to bring on. But just the entire discussion about sports, we look, we had a 40 and 5 minute interview, interview with him, and 35 or 40 was about sports. Yeah,
0: and it, it's a great interview, and that's going to be on next Monday night, right here on Ira on Sports. Let's get into it, Ira. I had. The most enjoyable Sunday in a long, long time watching this, the match with tiger uh, peyton brady and um and uh, Phil. I get two takeaways from it. One, I'm a better golfer than Tom Brady. I had no idea that was the case. He says he's a six or an eight handicap. I didn't see it yesterday. Maybe he had a little bit of an off day. But we were texting, and I gotta tell you, that was so enjoyable. I think that I would rather watch that on some Sundays than some of these
1: smaller golf tournaments. It was that entertaining. Well, I was surprised as... As poorly as in the seen places that Manning and Brady played, I think they were able to hit some good shots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one neat thing about golf that you could actually see them play. But it was extremely enjoyable. I was riveted at the end. I was The whole time, I just loved the interplay. I liked the fact when they went to alternate shot after nine holes, which I think they should have done a better job explaining the rules. The rules yeah. were a little weird. Even if you follow golf, it was weird what was going on mm-hmm. on some of these things. So I think they did not do a good enough job with all the casual fans out there explaining what was going on with the alternate shot. That was the one thing, but It was great watching Manning, watching Brady, Phil, Tiger, the interplay. This is so much better than last year because Phil and Tiger, and you saw what happened this year. Tiger, the last few holes got very quiet. He wasn't really talking, (laughs) was focused. And then it's hard to have conversations and banter when only one person's talking. Mm -hmm. But then you had, you added Manning who talked the whole time. And then you had Brady who made a comment there. And with Phil, you just had more people out there. So there's more discussion. It was much better than the one-on-one format.
0: Let's talk um, just a little bit before we talk about the actual golf. The, The... the production was fantastic, especially with the, you know, all things considered, the rain, the bad weather. I mean, Justin Thomas was great. Charles Barkley was great. Immelman was great. This was just uh, all around. I think they they knocked it out of the park with this. And Peyton taking those jabs at Brady was just the icing on the cake.
1: Well, it was it was so cool. I mean, I went up this weekend to uh, Hutchinson Island just because I didn't know if the beaches were here. So I got a hotel room up at the Marriott there and uh, just thought I'd go to the beach for a couple days. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, and the t- Turner was brought, that's where their headquarters, their people were mm-hmm. there, and Barkley, I walked out the other day, yesterday, and I just missed Barkley, someone was telling me, I was <laughs> running to I Go. You, there was like 10 people at this pool, and like, you could have talked to Charles Barkley, I'm socially distanced, of course, and, uh but he was, they were right there broadcasting, so I'm, I was real impressed that, I was afraid that they were going to get electrocuted. I mean, the rain was coming down and they're wearing all those wires behind them. Like, God forbid, like, I couldn't believe that they were able to keep the the audio. The audio was amazing, that you could hear Mm -hmm. everyone talk, hear them discussion, and just... That was cool. I agree. Barkley's comments were great. Barkley was fantastic because he said he didn't say that much like he does with the NBA. Yeah. But everything he said was hilarious. Like, <laughs> I'm like I'm like barking as the match goes on. I'm like that's a great line. Another great line. Ilmelman was tremendous. Was just great having it. I think that was that was a great think choice. They the whole thing was perfect and how they handled it and putting them in the golf carts and we compared it to last week with the Justin Thomas and mm. the, with the uh, with the tournament they had in Seminole. This was much better even yeah. though there was only two celebrity two. Golf golfers, two celebrities, that this was just the format of driving the golf carts, everything. But in the rain and how they handled it, tremendous.
0: It, another thing, you know, that we'll, and we'll talk more about. I love the Poppins. You know, last week they had some decent banter, uh, Tariko did, but, you know, having Russell Wilson chiming in, Brooks Kepka tweeting in, <laughs> you know, daring Tom Brady to get a par. I, I just, I think they, they, they absolutely uh, just knocked it out of the park. And one of the things I thought was cool, Ira, you know, we're really... Lucky to live where we do. I was thinking, you know, Saturday afternoon. I bet I should just go hang out at the woods or at Thousand North because these guys are probably going to be hanging out, having dinner and having a, a <laughs> drink. You know, you
1: you would think if you wanted to run into them, you probably could have somewhere in Jupiter. Well, you're seeing the last two weeks with Seminole and Medalist and, and the fact that the golf. I mean, serves, golf down in South Florida has been so Miami with Doral dominated for so long. Mm-hmm. But then you look at PJ National and you look at Medalist and Seminole and you're seeing where all the golfers live. I mean, this is really the epicenter of golf mm-hmm. in the world it, is, right, is. is right here in Palm Beach County. Um, we're glad to have Ken Kennerly on. He says the same thing. And it's great when you see guys like Brooks Kepka come up. But I mean, I'm waiting for more of these. Like, I want to see the next, like, lots of Brooks Kepkas come up. Because mm-hmm. you got to think with all these pros that are just walking around town, the great coaching that we have. We had Warren Bakke on before. Everything that's here, you just got to think this is where we're going to start be developing, just like Texas has football players. I mean, I want to say, oh, my God, he's a a golfer from uh, Jupiter, from Palm Beach County. That's where he's going to be a great golfer, that type of thing.
0: You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. We'll have John Pessa, a great author, on in just about 20 minutes or so. So, Ira, let's talk about the match. Yeah, I mean,
1: I thought the – I thought it was interesting about just the overall point. I love the driving around. I love the carts. I thought that was cool. And I think that was neat that you didn't have the caddies, you weren't out walking, and then it did... I'm telling you, the PGA Tour might look at this. They might say even though it didn't seem like it sped everything up because there was a lot of ban- banter that way between it, but it did, it did, like, whenever you, when it, they were able to run, like, a couple commercials, and then they're ready to hit off uh, their, their drive mm-hmm. on the, on the HT, there they they was, it wasn't, like, this long delay, and they were playing a thing that it sped it up, and I loved, like, ti- you know, Tiger's driving, Phil's driving, like, it was funny to see them just yeah. drive around a cart and, and, texting while they're driving, I don't know if that's allowed, but that was I did cool. notice that, yeah, looking at their phone between, <laughs> wearing, wearing shorts <laughs> alone is, is, is just weird That's to another Point. you know the wearing shorts like tiger just looks so comfortable mm-hmm. and my overall takeaway i'm driving here today i'm thinking what's my overall takeaway tiger woods because we saw that at the beginning he had pulled out of a, some tournaments at the beginning of this year his back was bothering wasn't ready you know was it was he going to play uh uh honda not play honda's back But all those issues with his back boy he looked comfortable yep. he looked comfortable he was hitting everything straight looked great and he looked great and i just i don't i mean I don't know why they don't let them play shorts. Well, we use shorts. I mean, that's an archaic rule. Um, I think one of the reasons was most golf courses used to require long pants so the idea is if the golf pros are wearing the, the shorts you can't sell shorts because people aren't wearing them. It's like Nadal used to wear sleeveless shirts mm-hmm. and most tennis clubs didn't allow you to play without a sleeve and they're like you can't wear the shirt because we can't sell it to anything. It doesn't make any sense. Now a lot of places do allow sleeveless but Nadal's even wear the sleeveless as so much. The past US Open he did. But you see even the medalist was letting them wear it. I mean most I would say 95% of all golf courses now allow you to wear shorts yeah. to play. So why in the world, can't you let Tiger wear shorts and Phil wear? I mean, I don't think there's a problem with letting them, if they're going to play comfortable, let them play wear shorts.
0: One of my, uh, one of the things I enjoyed, and not in a bad way or a good way, was seeing Tom Brady flustered. The, the way he is, he's one of the most competitive people on the planet. To see Things not going his way, and looking at his demeanor was something you really don't see very often. And it was very, you know, humbling to, to see Tom Brady just not doing something well. Well,
1: he was the worst out there. Yeah, I mean, he was the having the troubles, and and but to see him, I he had a, he had one of the best lines when they asked him when Manning was talking about. They asked Manning, "Would you wear? Why wouldn't you wear black and red?" Because. Brady and Phil both wore like black and blue, like that type of color. Mm-hmm. And they asked, well, they asked Manning, well, why weren't you wearing black and red with like tigers colors? And then they were going back and forth.
0: About the Falcons. Yeah, the
1: Falcons, <laughs> Eagles. And then Brady goes, Brady goes, I would be more concerned wearing, he goes, I did, he was more upset he didn't want to wear anyone wearing Eagles colors. I mean, it's like weird. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it was, I like that little band. Again, there were some things that I think even people missed. Like it was like back and forth, and you sort of got a glimpse, and I didn't cover, but it was some digs. I mean, it was good. I mean, I don't I think the banner wasn't – I felt Phil push it. I heard someone saying they felt Phil talked too much. Um, I thought he talked fine. Like, like yeah. he had to carry it, and I thought Manning was great. I think everything was great. There's nothing about it that I would complain. The people had to be who they were, but I agree – Brady was struggling, but you can see the competitiveness because he did hit that big putt and yeah. he also had the, the, the uh, 150 yard yeah. hole out, especially when they're all busted on him and Barkley's face. I mean, you're like <laughs> you're not busted on the average Joe. I mean, you're <laughs> busted on the greatest quarterback of all best football player <laughs> of all time and he came through and I just yeah, I love the fact that he was still competitive and and that was fun to watch. I mean to see these four guys out there, especially when you're going to 16, 17, 18 and how like they even raised their game on The one on was it sixteen? The par three when Russell Wilson goes. Russell Wilson was said one hundred thousand meals if you're twelve feet within the hole. Brady goes seven feet, Mickelson five feet, and, and Manning two, two feet. The, <laughs> worst. In. the worst was was Woods. Woods yeah. is like twenty feet. I mean, the fact <laughs> that when you had all that money on, at, the fact that Manning and Brady could come up with that shot, pouring down rain, they've been out there for three and a half hours. It's getting late, and Brady comes up with that shot. I mean, that's like you're right. That was extremely impressive. These guys. I mean, you got that's just some. I mean, just loved. I love the competitiveness of it. I I I would have to say I'm gonna clearly. I'm sure of saying this that Manning and Brady if they would practice and play golf I mean there are times when I bet you they they would over outplay pro golfers because mm-hmm. they're just their mental toughness is just blows away some of these pro golfers that we see that has all this experience or whatever there's I would say most pro golfers of the sport do not have that mental fortitude that those two have
0: let's uh let's get into it so going to the first hole it, it was exactly what I expected and it was really cool having um, what's his name? Samuel Jackson <laughs> kind of narrate these guys as they step into the box. That was really funny and then every single drive was poor. <laughs>
1: It was all over in the straw. Everything was back and forth. And, uh, it was like, and then the key was in the, remember the first, the first holes, the first nine, they were just playing their own ball. So you expect Phil and, uh, F- Phil and uh, Tiger to just, you know, win- dominate, dominate yeah. the thing, but they did have some problems on some things. And it was neat to see. Then you're getting a sense of how patrons playing, how Brady's playing. So I think the first couple of holes where they both tied, I think it was just nice to get their feet wet, see how they play, just get used to it. And I think that was great. And then, uh, uh, then it was, like, on the par five on the third hole. That's when Woods... But you got the sense early. Like, Woods is playing well. Like, when they had their tracer, the shot tracer, mm-hmm. I mean, everything... Woods was just It's unbelievable. Now, I know he wasn't using the driver on some of his holes and he was just playing mm-hmm. safe. But, boy, Woods just looked like... I mean, every, everyone else, the ball's going everywhere else. Woods is just dead, right, straight down. And he just hit it and just... Just walked away. Wasn't even nervous about it at all. Yeah, that's that's when you know when they
0: don't even watch the ball, <laughs> They just pick up their tee and start walking back to the cart. That's when you know that uh, they striped one. So they get up to two and another tie, like you said. They were just getting loose, and now uh, we're on three. And this was the
1: long drive or the first long drive challenge. Yeah, Woods won that, and yeah. then but then he well, comes... t- t- Phil didn't hit the fairway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And that's where and then and then Woods was able to get a. Uh, I think he birdied that Woods birdied that that par five, and that gave them. It was you know one of those things where you can saw them conceding the different putts you know mm-hmm. where they were playing Ryder Cup rules, where it's close and I think there were a lot of concessions I mean it seemed like there were some putts where you like to put them out and I saw where they really weren't making Manning and Brady putt when they had a chance to mm-hmm. putt out so I thought that was good but but woods just to get that that whole lead up and you could see it mattered like they were they were they knew where they were they knew this was a competition and I did like it better this way than the skins I think it would the skins oh, yeah. got too complicated this is like we're playing a match and the teams looked as much as it looked like they weren't the teams were actually fair I mean they was one they separated by one hole. So at first, I said, "Wow, Manning has more experience with with Woods." The more you watched it, you thought they should dominate. But but Phil and Tom hung in there. So I get, I mean, it, it was good that the teams played evenly. Vegas had. Woods
0: and Peyton as big favorites. And I, so I was a little surprised it was so close. I thought they might have uh, known a little bit more. So, th- what happened next?
1: Well, I thought the par three on the fourth, when Manning hit a birdie, he's the one who hit the birdie putt. it. Mm-hmm. so that was great. That's where, where Manning is like, wow, he's a better golfer than you think. So, I thought he played well in that hole. I, then I thought the par 5-4 was great when they did the one-club rule. Like, that was such Very a great cool. thing. That was great. Every and every golfer in the world is thinking,
0: what club would I use if I only had one? So it was cool to see their, their choices and why
1: they picked it and then watching them putt with their irons. Yeah, so Tiger had a four-iron, and Phil used a six-iron. And Charles had his best life because anybody who knows South Florida golf knows that there's water. And I've seen it, too. I mean, I've been down at the ha- at the PJ National, and you've seen it. And Charles said, what's the over-under with an alligator eating, banning, or Brady? <laughs> because the <laughs> balls were all flirting next to them. The, that was just a great line. But Tiger was on with two with a four iron. And then, oh, that was another good line. When Phil asked Phil asked Tiger, so Tiger's already on the green, and Phil goes, do you want to go up and mark your ball? So Phil would hit the ball, and Phil, and Tiger was saying, would you have a mark for me, like a silver uh, silver U.S. Open pin, meaning he finished second. Mm-hmm. And then Ty, Phil's <laughs> like, no, use one of your gold, master gold yeah. U.S. Open pins. And I thought that was good. And then, and then Phil almost hit Tiger's ball, which yeah. is on the green. And that was uh, they split the hole, and uh, and then and then actually they were, Manning won the, the sixth hole, so Tiger was up three, and that's when you thought it was going to run away because after six holes they're up three and they seem to be dominating, and then they went to uh, but then of course the, the tide turned on the on the seventh hole.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What happened then? So that was the. Uh, when Brady hits, that's when Brady was told Manning they have not been, oh yeah, Brady was talking to Manning about Tennessee and they were back. He goes, the Volunteers haven't been great since you left. I like that line. (laughs) It's true. And then that's where Brady was, uh, they were Barkley was just blasting him like, Brady's terrible. I need to play against him. He's this and that. He's awful. And then 150 yards in the fairway, he hits and it spins right in for a birdie. That was just so cool. Like, that was great. But it was weird. Tiger also he got a birdie on the hole too so they stay they, they they he missed his birdie putt, but they tie the hole so people think Brady won that hole but if they would have lost it they would have gone four down mm-hmm. to the point that he was able to get that in and spin that in that of course that was a shot at the day, 150 feet from it spitting it down and then Brady just looks like it's like he just oh <laughs> just, he felt good oh after that. my god I mean you're like this great quarterback and everyone's bust on you and he hears what people are saying mm-hmm. like on that one oh, it's thing, in your ear Trevor Immelman <laughs> was telling him like what should I do like on that hole he didn't know what the rule was on the drop and Immelman's like the, the rules of wasn't there? So Immelman's telling, drop this, move your thing here. This is whatever, mm-hmm. and then like Barkley saying, you want to give some more advice to Tom? Does he need more help on this and that? And I think someone said, you need Belichick in his ear to tell yeah. him what to do? <laughs> and uh, and I, I just thought when he hit that, just that look was just oh. This
0: just stealing. <laughs> I do have to correct Tom Brady because didn't Tennessee win the national championship the year after Peyton left? So they haven't been good since then. With team martin Yeah, with martin You're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. Got John Pessa coming up in just a little bit. Um, so let me go to the back nine. And did, 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 did the format
1: changes. And you're right. They didn't do a great job explaining this to everybody. I think still people don't understand what they're doing. They were It was a modified alternate shot, meaning that they would both hit – from the 10th hole. I wish they would have made it clear. Like, they didn't really do a mm-hmm. good job explaining it, so this. It's et- not a common format either that people really know. But I love, but it was good when you have, when you have the pros and amateurs, it's perfect for what they were mm-hmm. using. So that was great. They were having everyone hit drives off the, and then they would then choose which drive to hit. So the point was, is at that point, you would all, you'd want Manning and Brady to have an okay drive so that, that Phil and Tiger could play the second shot, yeah. which is the harder, which would technically be the harder shot. So people were wondering, like, people were texting me like well, why aren't Using like why was Tiger using uh, why weren't they using Tiger's ball when it was better than Manning's is because the strategy the strategy yeah. was if Manning's was just good enough they would rather have that be the second shot so do you want to you want to alternate that way which having the the second shot be use that ball so Tiger would technically have be able to go to his shot and then be next for the next putt and that type of thing so that, I loved how that was that was I think that was a great way to do it and then you saw sometimes they were using as the key was Brady and Manning not hitting drives all over the place for those final nine the final nine was so much better than the front nine it was perfect I just wish they would explain you because everyone's texting me I don't understand what's going on
0: so so what happens after we kick that off
1: well they uh, uh, they were trying to get situations where it, when they were alternating, like if you had to be, it, then like Tiger was putting and Brady was putting. So they have the first hole. So they went up uh, three and then the 10th hole, they have that hole. And then on the par four 11th, Brady was putting and Brady, that's where Brady had, Brady had a couple great shots and mm-hmm. that was the other one where he, I was like an eight, nine foot putt that he put in. Yeah, not easy. And then he won the hole. So then Tiger, so the Tiger and Manning are only up two. So that cut that down. And then they had a par three uh, was, was the 12th and both Manning and Brady were putting for Birdie they both missed, which was cool. When you see, that was fun to see. Mm -hmm. Each one had like a 10-foot putt for a birdie and they, you know, they're like, Manning versus Brady and back again and all the games they played and all those things. And then, uh, they were down, so Tiger was still up too up, but then the par five, the 13th, that's when the rain was just going crazy back and forth. And that was neat because they were using, like Manning used uh, the Tigers for the second shot. And... uh, uh, then he missed it. Was like Phil had a chance to take it to one, but he missed an easy putt. So I think Phil on thirteen had a chance to cut it to one. He blew. It. Phil missed a couple putts. I think he should have made thirteen. Was one of them. It's.
0: I guess it does. You know, it's really hard to tell on TV. But I believe it was Immelman and Justin Thomas talking before the match about how difficult those greens are and with woods playing you know hundreds of rounds there really gave him the advantage so maybe that was a, a little bit of the case there
1: yeah and then when Manning missed on 14 Manning misses an easy putt that would have that which cost them the hole so now it's down to mm-hmm. one so now you're going to 15 16 17 18 you know it's one of those points where it could have ended early like if it was three it was like you know they're up five with four holes to go it could have been over. Yeah, it's over but then you realize it was going to be closer and uh but then it was like Mickelson four and 15 Mickelson hit a big putt but sixteen. Was the, was the best when they brought Russell, I said, Russell Wilson 100,000 a meal and they go up to that par three and it was like oh my, I could not believe like the Brady had seven feet Mickelson five and Manning two I mean Manning's shot almost went in there and,
0: and he was third too it's, right. if you see the two good ones it really puts that pressure on you and the fact that he beat them was just incredible
1: and then Woods I, I, the fact that Woods was the worst I mean what was yeah. the odds in Vegas like who's going to be closest <laughs> to the hole on this and I just think it was neat that Russell said anybody's within 12 feet I'll give a 100,000 so we gave up 300,000 meals the fact that you had three of those guys go within 12 feet just just tremendous because you saw that in the uh the match they played at Seminole, the four pros there, there was one time there was a 12 foot hole 12 feet within a hole and none of them hit within 12 mm-hmm. feet of the hole so i thought that was so cool and then uh, so Tiger's still up by one and remember the last year in the match when they went to the final and they tied and they went to that stupid sudden death mm-hmm. and then phil won i was like wow tiger could like lose like he's done really Played well the whole time, like they're going to lose this somehow in some crazy sudden sudden death. And but they tied on the par five, and then on the uh, 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 on uh, the seventeenth, and then going down the final eighteenth. The best that Phil could do was to get you know to win that hole to tie to put it to sudden death. And the key was that was really Peyton's second shot was on the green, whereas Brady's wasn't. So Peyton was able to get on the green on the second shot. And Tiger put, you know, the putt within an inch, you know, halved the hole, and then it was over. But I thought that was so Tiger and and Manning ended up winning one uh, one up with, you know, uh, one up.
0: Either way, Ira, it was a huge win for golf. It was a huge win for charity. And it was a huge win for us, the fan. I mean, this was
1: the most exciting thing I've seen since quarantine started. Yeah, it was. I thought it was great. I thought it was great to see Tiger out there filling out there and just the excitement i mean brady and manning like i was we're talking i'm like what other athletes and i would say we talked maybe lebron or jordan or yeah. you had jordan and steph curry steph Curry, steph curry yeah. plays golf like to put i think you'd have to put something like that where you have but i love the format of the two pros and the two amateurs i think that's even better than the two like this format worked especially when you have it it has to be big names it can't just be people we don't know like our, you know but don't it has to be guys like manning and brady to do it and they manning and brady i was i I was busting on Brady earlier, but he played well. The I mean, he hung in there. It was pouring down rain. It was tough. The weather's tough. He's not used to this. He played 18 holes earlier that day. Yeah. He was focused. And then he was doing jumping jacks and sprints in the parking lot. Right. You know, so it was – he's – I just – the fact that, you know, you can see they're pros, pros. And uh, I just loved it, loved it a lot.
0: Did um, you happen to throw a bid out there for any of the golf carts? I know that you would want that Tiger <laughs> golf cart. They were auctioning them off.
1: I think they probably went for a million apiece. I can't so imagine. They, they, raised, they raised $20 million in charity, which was great. And, uh, uh, but it was like, it was like one of those things they need. And you, you think, you know, I, I was wondering why some of the other sports, I know that ESPN had that horse competition, but there could have been things like home run hitting contests they could put together that mm. they might be able to, but this, this looked great and great for golf, great, tremendous for golf tremendous for Phil, tremendous for Tiger. I think it was a win-win for everything. Great for
0: South Florida. It's that great we get for to show South- off our great golf course. Yes,
1: and it was that was all those things and and I you got credit. It was pouring down rain. Most cormants would have even just stopped. The fact that they played through mm-hmm. it, wanted to go through and and just saw the competitiveness of I what Tom Brady goes like, they might have stopped. He had a good quote. He goes to go line, he goes, they would have stopped a football game with rain like this.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's Iron Sports on the True Oldies Channel. We just got about 10 minutes uh, until we get to John Pesce here. But Ira, you took in the uh Lance
1: Armstrong 30 for 30. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, fan of... I, I was a fan of Lance. I still am. And I wanted to see... It was the 30-30. A 30, little different than the uh, the Jordan, the last dance 30 for 30. And have, they did two hours, and they're going to, I think, two hours this Sunday and two hours next Sunday. And this was sort of Lance Armstrong's chance to explain, in his words... Exactly what mm-hmm. with the doping, and it was he didn't control it like Jordan did. You can see how it was, I think it was so focused on doping, but it was really interesting. I mean, to think that when this kid was 12 years old. He went and he couldn't swim and he went, he didn't really play sports, didn't do anything. He was just bad at everything, he said. So he went to a pool when they made him swim with six-year-olds. So he's 12-year-olds and he's in a pool with six-years-old learning how to swim. And by the time he's 15, he's one of the top triathletes in the world. So how in the world do you go from 12 to 15 it's is, it is just amazing. And the fact, his mom was so involved in, in pushing him and working with him. They brought his mother on. It was nice to see that. Um and then the fact that he just, just jumped in, I mean, his growth in, and then he just gave up to a triathlete after being so young and going to be viewed as the greatest triathlete of all time, just to go back into the cycling and just push into the cycling. But they said, look, I mean, what you learned from this was that it was so prevalent in the sport. The cortisone, the doping, everyone, everyone was doing, doing it. It was the whole sport you couldn't compete if you didn't and the big thing was the EPO drug the uh the type of drug they used for oxygen to help with their oxygen and that came on and that was the big that was the separation factor of what they what they had to do uh, I did like the fact that they talked about how hard the Tour de France was how it's the most ridiculous and much challenging thing and they talked about Americans and cycling how everybody's viewed differently but that if you're a great American you're a totally oddball because the other sports cycling is a key sport whereas in America cycling is you have to be an oddball to want to be good at mm-hmm. it. And they talked about his early history. In 93, he was a world champion. And then 94, he was, he was getting killed because all the other... He was clean and everyone else was using EPO. He wasn't and was losing. And then in 95, he won a Tour de France stage. Then at the end of the year, he started working with this guy, Ferrari, who was the king of the drugging and everything. In 96, he had a different body. But then he's out with his friends in Austin, Texas, and riding around. He was not was getting sick and everything. Then realized his a stage... Three stage four testicular cancer, um, and they gave him like a zero percent chance yeah. to live. Not not whatever. It's just truly remarkable when you see the pictures of him in '96. To think that he would won seven toward de Francis. Look what he in '96. They like they're giving him no chance to live, no chance to whatever. Um, and just his brain the cancer has spread to his brain everywhere. Part. And just to come back from that, and when he came back, that no one wanted to sign him, nobody wanted to have anything. He said, "I'm going to ride." They thought it was a joke. They thought it was crazy. And and finally, the postal service put him on their team, uh, and they paid him versus points, which became the big problem in the lawsuit. And he started. He dropped out his first couple of races, but then he started winning. And then in 1999, he ended up. He he won the Tour de France in 1999, which is just a remarkable comeback. And then became the celebrity he was today. Uh, they they talked about how that's when it stopped. That the first thing, how they stopped. But the point was is that you know, doping plays a major, major, major role in this. But the one thing is that every of the teams was using it. He couldn't mm. compete if he didn't use it. And it's like, and it was so standard that it was just like natural that people were going to be doing those type of things.
0: It, it was. I, I was kind of young when all this happened. I, I was a teenager. And I just remember how he kind of took over the world for, for a while. Like he, that it was the year of Lance Armstrong. And I think it was, it was good for cancer awareness. And it, it was just a, kind of a positive thing in general. It, it's so unfortunate that it's got a negative spin on it now.
1: Well, I think what his difference was he went to the cancer, like the American cancer society after he won, and he goes, I'm going to start a, a charity. I'm going to start a foundation. They had no idea it was going to go up as much. It was. And a lot of the cancer was like, we're, we're doing things to find cures for cancer. We're trying to do. And his point was, Look, people are going to have cancer. They're going to learn how to live with it. I want to show instead of that. Not only can you live with it, but you can thrive with it. You can win toward a mm-hmm. Francis, like that's that whole motto of of live strong, which is if you have cancer and you're a survivor, you can still do anything you want to do. And that was phenomenal. And that was the message. And that's what I think people found passionate about what Tiger, what, Ty, what Lance was able to do. With, and as and, the, and he was able. Look, he certainly maximized in that short period of time that he was the biggest star of the world. And he mentioned, and it was weird. He The one line that I just, I kept thinking about it yesterday, was he said, um, I was as big as LeBron, Michael Phelps, all those players. And he goes, I don't know if I would be happy being, I don't know if he's, convinced himself. He said, "I don't know." He goes, "That really wasn't me." And I don't know if I was, if I'm big like that now, I'd feel the same. I don't know why he just said that because he has to internalize himself. But it's weird because they showed him getting this award, and it was like a whole controversy. He should even get an award? I mean, he's banned from everything. He cannot go and compete in triathlon. Can't beat in a bike race. He's just nothing. He's a pariah yeah. to all sports. And at one point, and when you look at a guy like A Rod, who was. Caught twice for doping is broadcasting games is being involved was talking about buying the Mets. I mean, there's no pariah in Aaron. No, I mean, he might all. not get in the Hall of Fame. There'll be Hall of Fame issues, but it's it, he's he's more like in the Barry Bonds type of field and Sammy Sosa area, which they're. But the point is that Armstrong's fall was even much greater than Bonds and and those. I mean, he's he's total pariah to everything. But I think it was the interviews with him was, are excellent. They bring out. I mean, he comes across that he's a very defiant person and that he wants to, you know that. Did you see that with Jordan with him and every. Thing. But the idea about the doping is like if everybody was doing it, every person in that field was doing it, then what, what's the difference?
0: Then nobody's doing yeah. it, essentially.
1: We've just got about five minutes here, Ira. What's going on in NASCAR? Well, the, they had two races this week. Wednesday night, Denny Hamlin won Darlington. It was exciting because... Kyle Busch uh, caused Chase Elliott who was leading with eight laps to go and it caused a crash. Chase Elliott's one goes off. He you know, starts giving him the fingers Kyle Busch, which is great. You love that happening. And then uh, and then, so Denny Hamlin won the Darlington race in South Carolina. And then they had the race in Charlotte last night, which for NASCAR, it was delayed by raid. It was hard to follow because it kept getting delayed, pushed back. But Brad Krasowski won Won that. Bill Elliott was leading the entire race and there was an accident. William Bryan had a tire problem with two laps to go and uh, 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 Bill Elliott pitted he pitted mm-hmm. and uh brad stayed out and that was there was like he Everyone thought there was gonna pit and they didn't and he ended up winning the race uh but and jimmy johnson finished second he was the big star that everyone thinks about seven time uh champion winner cup winner but he was disqualified at a post-race inspection but it was like one of those things it was a good race but i think it was hard because it was right when the lance armstrong thing people would watch golf all day i don't think it was that in terms of it was hard to fall and it was an end till like one in the one in the morning for uh for the nascar
0: and what about uh, ufc
1: well, the UFC is, they have the fight coming up. They're on a fight night on Saturday and on ESPN, ESPN Plus. Uh, Tyson Woodley, who is the number one uh, world ranked welterweight versus Gilbert Burns. So that's going to be on ESPN. And that, they don't know where it's going to be. They ES, um, UFC wants to have it at the Apex Center. They built this beautiful center that's mainly just for studio uh, UFC fighting. But, the governor will allow them have it there, so they might have to move it to Arizona, but that's going to be this Saturday, and then there's going to be a NASCAR race uh, this Wednesday at Charlotte and then Sunday at Bristol. So there's only two. There's no golf this week, but there's going to be a NASCAR race on Wednesday, NASCAR race on Sunday, and UFC on Saturday. Side note,
0: and I don't think we talked about this, um, the Belmont Stakes is, is actually officially, they have a date. It's going to be June 20th. It's going to be a little weird to do the uh, you know, do the triple crown in reverse, but maybe we can get uh, some of your horse racing pros on for that. It's exciting that we're getting back to normal with horse racing.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mean to have the run the Belmont, and the Belmont's supposed to be, you know, has always been the third race. Yeah. You're going to have run the Belmont, the first race, then have two months off, then have Kentucky Derby in September, and then a few weeks. Because Kentucky Derby is October, In October, yeah, and the then, third. and then the, uh, and then, and then the Preakness. Mm-hmm. So it's just going to be a mess in terms of how they've broken all these how it up. And but they're going to try. Look, they the Belmont wants to run. They don't even know how many horses are going to enter, how it's yeah. going to be entered. They talking about having two heats. So there could be two Belmont. Think? <laughs> could you imagine if you had two <laughs> Belmont winners, and then one, they each has a chance for a Triple Crown? Well, they call. A triple Crown, who knows? They're just trying to get these races out and, and to do, but it was, uh, it's going to be weird. And they're not going to run at the mile, in, a mile and a quarter. They're going to run at a mile and eighth. It's going to be a shorter race because it's earlier in the in the year, but usually the Belmont has a very small field because who's going to run a mile and a half? Mm-hmm. It's near the end of the season. All the other Triple Crown races are out. If It if it's usually has the six, seven, yeah, or six, field. seven eight, yeah. and now it could be have a huge field because everyone's going to want to run in it.
0: Did you happen to take a look at the proposed NHL playoff pr- procedure where they take 20 20- 24 teams, really only eliminate seven teams, take 24, top four, get a bye, and then run it like that. What do you think of that well, that's
1: format? the big that's the big debate in terms of the NBA and the NHL is their seasons were almost complete. So they're like, if they're going to have it go to one site, and they're talking about NBA and Disney yeah. and the NHL in Vegas, and they're going to do that. Put all the teams there. Why bring all thirty teams uh, in there? Why don't you bring less teams? Just have them play in a tournament setting, and then you don't have you know you can save an amount of people who are going to go there potentially get uh, have false tests. I mean, I mean negative tests, uh, positive tests. So the point is, could that be one of the reasons why they do it? And it looks like the NBA wants to try to finish their season out, uh, play this in July. I I think the NBA and NHL, I think it's hard. I mean, they're yeah. pushing this, and again, it's going to. Look, I don't know. I'm not sold that this is – like they're, they're, I, I think they should be focused on next year, getting the season back for next year because they're going to be off for four months, bringing the teams back. They're really going to be a champion. You haven't played for four months, and then you're going to crown a champion. I, these players are going to get hurt. They're going to rush back into. this. They haven't been working out. I'm not sold on this. I'm Look, I'm going to watch it. I think hey, of But if they have it, but I think it's going to be – the logistics are going to be a little weird on this. I heard the NBA
0: might do no conferences. Right. Just, just to one see, through. so you could see L.A. versus L.A. in the, in in the, the championship, yeah, game, in the Which would just be crazy. Ira, we've only got like a, a minute left or so here. I know we wanted to talk about Last Dance. We could touch on that le- uh, next week, but we do have to bring up Jerry Sloan passing away. And this is a guy who, growing up, I, I think Jerry Jerry Sloan just seemed to be like one of the most one of the greatest coaches that the NBA had, and it's a shame to to have him go.
1: He's the fourth winningest coach of all time with 1,200 wins over 1,200 wins. He had 15 consecutive playoff appearances. I mean, the only reason they didn't win the titles is they were going against the uh, the Lakers of Kobe and Shaq, yeah. and they were going against the Bulls of Jordan. I mean, he happened to be against these dynasties and the Spurs there, too. I mean, it was like, just fit in the wrong type of situation in terms of when is with Malone and Stockton. But he was also a great player. He played 11 years and was one of the top all-time scorers in Chicago Bulls history. So it was, and and we had uh, um, We Will Rise about Evansville. He was a star at Evansville, and he was supposed to be on that Evans basketball team, a Steve Even who wrote the book, We Will Rise, mm-hmm. about the Evansville basketball tragedy, he was named the coach of Evansville then after two months said, I, I want to be a pro, I can't be a college coach, gave that up, and then a few months later, the plane crashed and died. Now, who knows what they would have been flying or whatever, but he, that you know, then he went into, he was a coach for the Bulls for a year, got fired, and then became a coach of the Jazz and had this great, successful run, but uh, certainly a terrible loss for the NBA, which is a classic guy. You see it throughout when you're watching the uh, last dance in terms of what they... We're spending, in, you know, the team that he created in, in Utah.
0: Let's go to John Pesa now. It's
1: Yogi, a life behind the mask on Iron Sports. We're talking to John Pessa, author of Yogi, life behind the mask about Yogi Bear. Uh, and I have to say, I, the first thing when I'm when I finished reading your book or actually during the book, John, is I feel like I owe Yogi Bear an apology. Because I never thought he was that good. Like, I mean, I thought he was great, like an all-time great Yankee. But when Derek Jeter, when they're talking about the man DiMaggio youth and Garrigan, they say, who's going to be on the top five? You know, they call it Mount Rushmore or whatever they want to describe it as a top five. I said, well, Jeter should be in that top five. And I put him, I just bumped Yogi off. And after reading your book, I'm like, I think that was a mistake. So, I mean, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports and, and writing about a person that's sort of a little forgotten.
2: Um, Thanks, Ira, it's great to be here And you're absolutely right Um, You know, I I saw Yogi uh, I'll be 68 And I saw Yogi starting in 1960 When he was a a good role player And my father's favorite player was Yogi um, Just told me about this incredibly dynamic player Who dominated the, you know Into the second half of the 1950s And was the best player on the team That he saw win five straight World Series titles um, and going back and looking at it, it's, um, you know, it's the end of DiMaggio's career. So as famous and great as Joe DiMaggio is, um, you, you forget that the last three years, he wasn't nearly the player he was for most of his career. Um, and it was the beginning of Mickey Mantle's career. I mean, Mantle really didn't hit his stride until like 55 and 56 was the big year. And Yogi was 20 plus home runs, 100 RBIs, 290 to 320, never strikes out. I struck out an average of 26 times a, a year and um, and just unbelievably dynamic in the clutch. And he was the best player on that team. And, yeah, I think that absolutely gets overlooked.
1: I mean, if you look at from 47 to 61 is 15 main years, nine World Series titles. They won three other pennants where they lost in Game Seven of the World Series. Is some of the most the Bill Mazeroski game, the Dodgers. You know, nice. three of the classic games in the history of sports. But nine World Series titles, three Game Seven losses, and three times they didn't win the pennant. And then look at his from forty nine to fifty six you think I'm talking about Mike Trout here. Three MVPs, two second-place finishes, a third and a fourth in seven years. I mean, that's Mike Trout level. I mean, he was the dominant player in the game for seven years, the best player. I mean, there's Stan Musial, and then there's Ted Williams, but it was really the end of Ted Williams' career. But he was, he, the, this, these stats are just amazing.
2: Are off the charts, and you don't think of Yogi that way. Uh, I mean, his, his average, especially in that time, um, is better than Stan Musial's. And everyone thinks and should think that Sam User was a phenomenal hitter, but that's how good Yogi was. And people don't realize, and I think one of the reasons, too, is that he was made out to be such a character. And he was a very interesting guy, not quite the character that he was portrayed. And I think that um, overshadowed his accomplishments as well, especially when you think of people who've only seen him in the last 25 years of his life. He lived to be 90. And, you know, it was the funny guy. That you know cranked out books um, called, you know called the Zen Master and he was on great commercials like the Affleck commercial and the Miller commercial um, and you kind of forget about him as a baseball player
1: and it was interesting to know he grew up in St. Louis, very in a middle working class Italian neighborhood called the Hill and all he wanted to do was play baseball his whole life and and he stopped he stopped going to school at eighth grade. He had an eighth education up to eighth grade, but he actually became one of the most intelligent players. If you say, if you follow his book about negotiations. So as much as he didn't have the formal education, he was very smart in, in how to negotiate and do everything. But just that the inner, the background that he grew up with and just his love of baseball comes through in your book. Oh,
2: thank you. I mean, you know, the things that were important to Yogi, he was really smart about baseball genius level. Um, movies he loved movies and he would give movie reviews in the clubhouse so much so that when he was a coach at the end with the with, with the astros he did a commercial thing about reviewing movies you'll get the movies 13 uh, 13 episodes um for each season and they're hysterical i mean they're just they're just great and um you know he um i'm sorry i lost the thread of the question i apologize
1: just about his growing up in terms of the, the love of baseball that he had. and
2: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the things that Yogi was smart about were, were um, definitely business things. Him and Carmen formed a terrific team, and Yogi had a great sense of what he was worth, both in, to the Yankees and later on to advertisers. Um, and he w- loved baseball, and he loved movies. Um, other things really didn't interest him that much, but, you know, you, you're describing what most People, especially in their 20s, and they're great athletes. It's like, I was a phenomenal sportsman. I knew everything about sports. The rest of the world, not so much. You know, and, and that's when he became famous. You know, when you go, I mean, God, wouldn't we all have loved to have played baseball for the New York Yankees in your 20s, starting life, making a lot of money? I mean, that's, that's a great life.
1: But he was so, people just did not, from what he looked, he was five foot eight. 180 pounds, small, and his stature and sort of portly, not in great shape, and people just couldn't believe he could play baseball. I mean, Branch Rickey saw him when he was like 14, 15 years old and laughed at him and didn't sign him even for $500. And even when the Yankees did sign him, when he finally went in to the owner's office, the owner was like, why are you even here? Who are you? Like people, and you told that great story about when he went, he showed up at Yankee Stadium and he was working with the, with the uh, for the, uh, in the military for the uh, military team. And there was for the football and they thought he was the equipment manager and he's going to be like, oh, "You'll be here for Yankees for the equipment. He goes, no, next year I'll be playing baseball for the Yankees and everything everybody laughed at him. So it was just how he overcame just the fact that people looked at him and thought he was funny looking almost.
2: You know, what, what that really is testament to is the incredible confidence Yogi had in his athletic ability. And his athletic ability was off the charts to look at him. You'd never know that he was a, he was a great athlete. I mean, it looked like he was put together with spare good parts, but, but they were, you know, long arms, long trunks, short legs, heavy shoulders, no neck, large head, um, I mean, he didn't look like your prototype athlete, like his best friend and across the street neighbor, Joe Garagiola, who at 15 was already like 6'1", 175 pounds, and he looked like the prototype athlete. I mean, Yogi Yogi didn't. The one thing I'll say is we remember Yogi being maybe a little portly at the end of his career, but in the 50s, this guy was you know, solid muscle, and he had to be to catch 148, 149 games a year, 20, 22 double-headers a year. I mean the guy was just an unbelievable off the charts athlete and that really does get overlooked.
1: And he was an American war hero cuz he was on the invasion of Normandy, he was on a rocket boat going to Utah Beach. I mean he was sitting in America safe and sound. And says, "Look, I want to go on a rocket boat and he and he was there right when they inv- on the actual invasion of Normandy. And I loved in your book, I know we're talking, you know, this time with the pandemic and with baseball issues, but you really spent some good time talking about in the book about World War II because he his right when he was he was signed by the Yankees, but then he went to fight in the battles and the war and then he came back. But talk you talked about how Kenneth M- Mountain Landis had talked to Franklin Roosevelt and said, what should we do about baseball? We just you know, the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. We're now in a war. What well, we do and you talked about how baseball was played during that period of time uh, when when we're in the middle of World War.
2: Yeah, I think Roswell was really smart. He knew that this was going to be hard. I mean, he had to lead America into war. America, you know, America didn't want to go to war and actually stayed out for a while. One of the reasons I think that Yogi was able to play that, that first season, uh, when he was eligible for the draft, and he, and he wasn't drafted. Um, but it is, uh, you know, he goes, um, he, he gets drafted, he goes into the Navy, uh, and the Navy is based in Norfolk, where he also played minor league ball, and they ask him... They ask people who wants to volunteer for a secret mission. You can't even tell your parents where you're going or what you're doing, and Yogi instantly volunteers. Um, more, I think, out of the, uh, out of boredom, because just sitting around just drove Yogi crazy. And it uh, turns out he's on these uh, rocket launcher boats. They're all 36 six feet long, and they're literally the first things that hit the beach at Normandy. I mean, they're 300 uh, feet offshore shooting their rockets into uh machine gun nest so the troops had a sh- chance at storming the beaches. And that's what Yogi was doing. Um, he later gets, he spends 13 months in combat, later gets hit in the hand, thankfully for him and for us. Uh, it didn't wreck his baseball career. Uh, gets the verbal Heart, but waits until he gets back to New London, Connecticut, uh, and, and out of uh, combat duty before he puts in for because he doesn't want to worry his mother in St. Louis.
1: You know it was interesting. Also, I mean, which you spend a lot of the book talking about his Italian heritage, and and because that's what they were in terms of him, and, and and he was close with the Italian. The Yankees were one of the teams that that actually signed like Rizzuto and himself in terms of the Italians. But I was amazed that DiMaggio, during when the war started, because the Italians were on the side of of the Germans, that he was actually getting booed at Yankee Stadium uh, for being Italian when the year before he was the MVP. Everybody loved him, and I, I was shocked when you when you described that in the book.
2: Well, there was one of the things that surprised me was the um, discrimination uh, faced by uh, Italians in this country in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, really into the 60s. And, um, you know, he, he was certainly uh, part of that. I mean, they, we all know that Japanese Americans were in internment camps and never should have been there. Um, but there were about, you know, 5,000 Italians that were put in internment camps as well. Um, Yogi's home on the hill was searched by the FBI for um, people who were uh, sympathizers to Mussolini, which no none of the people on the hill were. Um, Dimaggio, uh, the, the year before, is his fifty-six game hitting streak, and everybody loves Joe Dimaggio. And the next year, he doesn't volunteer for uh, to go to war. He's got a, a one-year-old, and people who have kids didn't have to uh, volunteer uh, or, I mean, sign up. And he got booed for that. And I'm sure that being Italian and not going in was a big part of the booing. And what a shock to go from being the most admired baseball player in the game to being booed at your own stadium.
1: No, it's it's (laughs) totally... Amazing, but when he came back and then he was called. I love. I loved your 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 story about when Mel Lott of the Giants saw Yogi play in, in a in a military game or something like that, and then he went to the Yankee owner. I went to the Giants owner to say, "Look, we got to hire sign this guy, but he's with the Yankees." And they and he went up to the Yankee owner and said, "Here, I want to give you fifty thousand for Yogi Bear." And the Yankee owner's like, "I have no idea who he is. he's like. I don't know who he is, but uh, we'll check." And then and then when he realized that well if Melod wants to give me fifty thousand for him, he must be pretty good. He finally out like he's in the low level ball of the Yankees, and then he called his people and said, We got to bring him up here if Melotte thinks he's so good.
2: Yeah, and then when he walks into the room, um, McPhail, uh, who was you know one of three uh, Pardones of the Yankees, looks at him and says, um, like everybody else who first looks at Yogi, going, This is an athlete. This is what <laughs> I turned $50,000 back in, 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 in 1946 was a lot of money. And uh, so, yeah, he was kind of shocked, but he would later tell a story um, laughing because Yogi ended up becoming a, a great player. And, but he, I think he was serious when he first took a look at him, like everybody else who, you know, underestimates Yogi when they look at him, and then as soon as he gets on the field. Um, there's a story in the book that I, that I absolutely love that, that was told to me by Red Beans who ends up being a Hall of Fame second baseman. And I talked to him in his later years as a coach of the, uh, the Cardinals, and he told me that he went to a tryout camp uh, thousands of kids. It comes down to him, Yogi, um, Joe Garagiola, and through five other guys that he doesn't remember. And he says, uh, you know, it was his turn to pitch, and he's pitching to Yogi. And he's 18, Yogi is 16. Um, and uh, Red said, you know, I had a really good arm. I could, not only could I not get the ball past him, but the sound that the ball made when it hit the bat was something <laughs> I'd never heard before. And he goes, this is the best player I've ever seen. And Brent Ricky decided it wasn't, and didn't sign him.
1: We're talking to Joe Pass, a uh, author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Uh, the, the definitive, it seems like, biography of, of Yogi Berra must read. It's a great, easy read and just, it's just, it's just enjoyable. It's like I loved your writing style and just it's wonderful to read the book. Um, so he comes up to the Yankees in his first year, and he, everyone knows he can hit, and he's hitting well, and he's hitting great. But he was a poor catcher, and the pitchers didn't want him to catch anymore. They wanted him to play in the field because he didn't know what he was doing. He's uh, fumbling, he's having pass balls. He can't throw any of the, of the he can't throw anybody stealing bases out, and so that he was just known more as a hitter and not uh, not a great catcher.
2: Yeah, you know, I knew going in that you know Bill Dickey turned him into a good catcher. That that's well known. What I didn't know was that he was so bad. That at the end of the 48 season, which is his second year in baseball, I mean he's hitting 15, 20 home runs, you know, knocking in 100 runs. So this kid's going to play. But when he was a catcher, you know, the pitchers just complained constantly. And when he played in the outfield, he hit better and the team uh, played better. So when the 48 season ends, um, Yogi Berra is the right fielder in 1949. Except they fire the manager and bring in Casey Stengel, and Stengel goes, you know, if I got a catcher that can hit. And in those days, catchers didn't hit at all. Their job was to play defense and call the game, and that was really important. Uh, but he said, you know, if I got a catcher who can do both, then I've got something special and I'm, and I have a better chance of winning. So he brings Bill Dickey in, and Dickey works with him two hours every day after practice. Um, and at the end of the, uh, spring training says that Yogi isn't just going to be a good catcher. He'll be the best catcher in baseball. Yeah. You really, you really spelled that he was right.
1: You really spelled how Dickey worked with him. And Bill Dickey is a hall of fame catcher in his own right for the, for the Yankees and with the Ruth and Gary Yankees. And a
2: great, and a great fielder. Right. And that that was the key. And, um, yeah, he was, um, you know, the Yogi did a lot of. Small mechanical things wrong that was that made him a terrible catcher and actually blocked one of his strengths. With Yogi has had an incredible memory, and he could remember you know how you how they got a batter out three years ago, what the count was, and how many people were on base. And I'm not joking. And you know if you can do that, you know that's like gold for a pitcher. But, it, but because he couldn't catch the ball, because he couldn't throw the ball, because he couldn't frame the pitches, not only couldn't he frame the pitch, but he used to take a strike, and he would stab at the ball, so he took a strike, and the umpire would call ball because of where in the mitt land. <laughs> and the opposite of what a catcher's supposed to do. Dicky corrected all of those mechanical. He saw that it was, everything here was mechanical, and that Yogi had the agility and the speed and the arm strength and the smarts to be a great catcher. And once he did, fixed all the mechanical things, all of a sudden we had the best catcher in baseball on our hands.
1: And one of the best hitters. And that's why he kept winning all those MVPs. I mean, and it was, right. and what I loved in your book was you talked about because he kept winning the World Series and he was the key component. I mean, another thing we have to realize is that as you mentioned earlier, he was at the tail end of DiMaggio's career in the beginning of Mantle. So he was the star of the team. And, and even though DiMaggio had, but even they said that he was a bigger star than DiMaggio at the time, more popular. DiMaggio was more reserved, but Yogi was the man of the people. Everybody loved him. But you talked about how every year he had to go get his contract and it was like this whole thing where he's, and he even He even held out some years and he just and we're we're talking about like making between 16,000 and 18,000 and he kept working his way up. And I love to tell you in the book you mentioned how much and then at times when he was earning like the eight, seven and eight thousand when his World Series share is five thousand. That's a big deal. Like when we talk about World Series shares, you know, LeBron James for the NBA finals isn't making uh, five, ten million dollars for winning the NBA finals. It just this was a significant amount of money for him to win that World Series.
2: Well, now you know why everybody in baseball wants to play for the New York Yankees. Uh, They doubled. I mean, Yogi doubled his salary by by winning the the team winning the the uh, World Series in 1947. Literally doubled his salary. Actually, the baseball the World Series check was bigger than his uh, salary for the year. And and really, in America, I mean, he made five thousand dollars a year at 21. He was doing a lot better than most 21 year olds, but not like it is today. I mean, there, were no, there's no, there was no such thing as free agency. You were tied to the team. And the only thing that you could do if you wanted more money was not to report and threaten not to play. And then it was a game of chicken. And Yogi won the game of chicken two years in a row uh, on holdouts. And you're right, he was the most popular player on the team, um, always in demand as a speaker. Uh, the, the fans loved him. So he had that going for him. They didn't resent him asking for money they thought he deserved uh, the money that he was asking for and so the yankees eventually just kind of like gave it up and negotiated with him and they both walked out happy that one i didn't have uh, an unhappy uh walk out on my hands and two yogi was happy with the money he got
1: and i love your stories with frank scott and this is back in the in the 1950s when he understood, when he went to, when Frank Scott said, did something for me, he says, here, I got all these watches. And he goes, what are you doing with these watches? I, oh, I got the watches because uh, uh, every time I speak somewhere, they give me a watch. And Frank's like, whoa, you got to you gotta make some more money off your name. And just talk about how he was able to, with the YooHoo hoo drink and, and the speaking and the bowling alley. I mean, his investments in the business side. So far, I mean, we talk about LeBron being this LeBron Inc. I mean, Yogi was Yogi Inc way before that. Yeah. LeBron.
2: Yeah, well, before that, in fact, you could argue because of the way the country and the media were concentrated that Yogi, you know, had a higher profile across the board with everyone um, than LeBron James has. And, and that's saying a lot. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's one story that I think puts it absolutely into perspective. 1962, Yogi's now, you know, been around since 1947, 15-year veteran. He's not the best player on the team anymore, but he's still by far the most popular player on the team. And this, this legendary ad man um, has the account for Quaker Oats for Puss Boots, cat food. <laughs> and the, the people who own the uh, Quaker Oats own it, and they tell this guy, um, listen, the only thing we're going to tell you is women buy cat food. So he comes back with a, with a campaign of the cat jumping around, working out in, in, in a gym, and then talking to Yogi Berra. And the people are, are stunned. They didn't dislike the concept of the jumping, you know, of the exercising cat, but we told you, cat, you know, women buy cat food. And uh, Lois told him, don't worry, every, all your wives know who Yogi Berra is. <laughs> and he did focus groups of 200 women, um, you know, like a dozen at a time. 80% of them not only knew Yogi, but uh, rated him highly trusted. Uh, and this is a baseball player that 80% of the women knew so well that they would trust what he said to go out and buy. That's wow. the kind of popularity that's the kind of that's the kind of impact that he had on the country in the in the fifties and the sixties
1: and then you mentioned how people he came up of age when television was coming. And you mentioned the World Series in 1952 against the Dodgers, and it seems like, or actually against the the World Series over the Giants, uh, 93 million people watched it. I mean, how many people were in America in that in 1952 that it was just so popular that he was on TV. It was the first time people got TVs and it was mass produced. And so he became, he was in everyone's living room, and baseball was the game. There was no, there was no NFL wasn't big. There was no NBA. It was just baseball at that time.
2: Yeah, there. I mean, if you were into sports, your sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball. And baseball, by far, was the most legitimate of all of all three of them, and the most beloved and ingrained into the society. In fact, that's one of the ways. I mean, Yogi comes from a class of people who, you know, wanted to assimilate into America, and Italians had trouble um, assimilating into America. And baseball was one of the ways they did it. I mean, DiMaggio always felt that burden, and it also fell to Silver Rizzuto and Yogi Berra. To be, you know, almost role models that, you know, people start uh, the discrimination of Italians started to dissipate. And I think sports and those people and yogi in particular is a big reason uh, for that.
1: I mean he was part of just the fabric of the history of baseball. I mean the Don Larsen perfect game that he was involved in I mean, you mentioned in 1947 where he was almost pitched when he first came in the league in the World Series he felt he made the mistake that cost one of the pitchers a no-hitter and then he had the chance to coach to uh, to catch Don Larsen's perfect game in 1962 or
2: 1956 I mean wait. Okay one of the things that's really interesting is watching other watching ball players react to other ball players and ballplayers, you know, look at Hall of Famers. I mean, now you're talking, you know, star ballplayers who are the best of the best are now looking at the very best of the best, and those people to them walk on water. And and when and when Yogi would walk, I mean, it's, he's like walking history. He's not only did he dominate the game, but he played with the Mago, he played with Mantle, he saw Mantle, be, you know, before he got hurt about what an astonishing talent this 19 year old was before he shattered his knee in the 51 World Series. Um, he just, uh, you know, he you know lives through a depression, lives, lives through war, grows up on television, as you were saying. I mean, TV, you know, I'm a baby boomer. so I was the first generation brought up with television and grew up in my era. And the people I watched were Yogi. He was on every variety show, the Jackie Gleason show, the Phil Silver Show, the Perry Como show, um, all the, uh, of course, Ed Sullivan show. And uh, on the game shows of the time, what's my line? And he was just always in front of people, doing a lot of commercials. And uh, yeah, I mean, his fame um, was—he was about as famous as, as anyone, any American in the 1950s. You
1: know, so he finished with with 358 home runs, 1435 RBIs. 2,148 hits. I mean, he's catching, as you mentioned, some years he's catching 145, 150 games. He coached, he catched, even when he was in his late 30s, like 22 innings of an extra inning game. Just amazing. I Again, the, back to one of the first question I had is like, why Why did, Why did when we looked at Jeter, is it just the prisoner of the moment? Did we put Jeter above him when really, he, Jeter is no way even close to Yogi Bear.
2: I don't know that Jeter puts, uh, Jeter in front of um, <laughs> Yogi. Uh, in, him in front of Yogi. Um, yeah, I think it's a function of time. I mean, my kids, who are now in their 30s, grew up watching Derek Jeter and the, and watched the Yankees win four of, of five championships, uh, you know, and almost won a couple, you know, came really close, like, in, in the seventh inning of the, the seventh game of the... Uh, ninth inning of the seventh, seventh game of the World Series against Arizona, of, of winning another one. So, I mean, Derek Jeter was as good if not the best player on those teams. So, you, you know, you tend to think of it, but think about this. I mean, one of the reasons that we think Jeter is so good was because he won five uh, World Series, and Yogi Berra won ten World Series. <laughs> I mean, that's almost inconceivable that, that you know, you would be, and, and again, for most of that time, he was the best player on the team.
1: Well, that's why we're, we're watching the last dance with the, with Jordan. He won six. I mean, that's the other thing. Jordan wins six. We have Tom Brady winning. You know, it's just six. It's just again, it's just amazing how what we look in terms of the ten. When really nine, he was a significant contributor for the nine of those World Series. Just it's in, it's incomprehensible almost to believe it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the only effort you can compare him on that level with is is um, Bill Russell, right? Who who had who had eleven, and then there's Yogi at ten. Um, I mean, there's some great, great players up there that have, you know, like the Maggio um, with eight, um, and Gehrig I think has seven. Uh, you know, but we're talking about the best. I mean, we're talking about Mount Rushmore, and that's the thing about playing for the New York Yankees. So what is the Yankees Mount Rushmore? You know, it's got to be uh, Gehrig, Ruth, the Maggio, and you know, before I started doing this book, I was, I mean, Mantle was absolutely fixed as the guy there. And now I look at it and I go, you know what? He's, he's part of the reason Mickey Mantle is, is there because of what he could have been, not as much as what he ended up being. I mean, you know, some of the scenes he had were uh, absolutely astonishing. and you got a glimpse of that ridiculous talent, but Yogi did it year in, year out and Mickey didn't.
1: I appreciate you coming on the, on the show on IRON sports. And I really appreciate you coming on our show today.
2: Oh, I had a pleasure. Um, Barnes and Noble, it's probably the only place you're going to be able to find the book right now. Amazon said May 5th because they sold out the first day they had it, which I guess is a really nice thing. And I think people are just dying to um, just dying for baseball. You know, I mean, it's such a void. I know it is for me. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why people um, have been buying this book.
1: Thanks a lot, John. Great stuff
0: there from John, Pessa, Ira. So, Ira, um, we, we talked about it before, but we've got a huge show on tap next week. I, I mentioned this last week. I've been in radio for over a decade. I've done dozens and dozens of interviews with celebrities. I don't think I've ever heard an interview with a celebrity that was as endearing
1: and just real life and entertaining as this one. Well, Brett Michaels has a warm heart for for this area, for South, for South Florida. He's uh, contributed a lot for charity. He's had some gigantic shows. I mean, being in the front brain of Foison, his own touring to shows. Uh, but He's just an amazing person. Loves sports. Just fits in well with what we're doing, and just a great guy. And just gave us our t- his time. And this interview is so cool. And he talked about, as I said, his insight into sports. You hear a lot of celebrities talk sports, but he knows these guys. Mm-hmm. Like he hangs out with these guys. He he's been, but since he's been a little kid, he's been hanging around and knowing. And it was just, it's great. And it's the mixture of the sports, entertainment, and music. And it was just perfect. And I, it was great for the interview. It's a great interview and I'm glad. It's like one of those interviews we thought we were going to go like 20 minutes on and we ended up doing a 45 minute yeah. interview and you're like, and I want to cut it. i went like, where can we cut this interview? And you're like, you can't cut anything yeah. of it. Yeah. It was just perfect the whole time and what a great interview. What a great guy and I'm so glad. I just if you guys have a chance, I mean, either listen to it live next Monday at 7 or or uh, just SoundCloud, iTunes, download it on, on our station uh, but I think it's a great one. It's I think our best interview we've done.
0: Absolutely. I agree. That's
1: next Monday night and now we're out of time for this
0: Monday night Once again, happy Memorial Day to everyone. Uh, On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.